Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You are listening to Rainbow Soul. Next, a heart exam. 
and close your pelvic exam. Reach his hands right up there in the vagina and some speculum, whatever the lady would call it. And, of course, a neurological examination to eliminate any coexisting medical conditions that might be contributing to the orgasmic dysfunction. And, of course, a mental status exam. Does the person know who they are, where they are? Are they mild, are they anxious, depressed? And so these are things the doctor is supposed to gather this information. Now, what about the diagnosis? How does the doctor tell that this is indeed FOD or female orgasmic disorder? Well, he has to find that there's not another disorder that would account for the lack of orgasm other than female orgasmic disorder. The dysfunction is not exclusively due to a direct physiologic effect of a substance. In other words, it might not be drug abuse or medication. It may be another cause. And laboratory evaluation, of course, should include a complete blood count, that means stabbing the poor lady with a needle, and chemistry panel, that means more blood, hormone panel, even more blood and more money, and vitamin B12 and folate levels, which is, of course, absurd, not because B12 and folate might not be relevant, but the cure is a pill under the tongue that retails for all of 10 cents. Why would anyone do an expensive test to look for that disorder? You can just put the pill into the tongue, see how things go. But I think this is a good time to pause and talk about the history of female orgasmic disorder. In other words, <laughs> lack of female sexual desire. Now, for those of you who don't know, I went to medical school back in uh, 1979 to 1983. And uh, during the course of classes or whatever, professors said, you know, one affliction, if we had a medication for that, man, it'd be a blockbuster. And so I was like, wow, what would that be? So here I am going to medical school to help people get better and improve their quality of life and and your self-determination, and the professor says, a pill that would create female sexual desire. So, of course, I drew a blank. Why would that be relevant? I mean, you either have it or you don't. If you have it, fine. If you don't, fine. That was my naive 20-something view of the matter. But the professor went further to say that there is no medication for female orgasms because women are extremely complex and whether a woman has an orgasm or not is dependent on so many factors that can't be controlled and if she does have an orgasm or if she doesn't, her level of satisfaction with that situation is dependent upon so many factors. It is not possible to make a pill to address this issue. So, of course... My question, as an IE 20-something, was, well, who cares? Who wants to know? I mean, I don't get it. So it turns out that just like you have uh, date rape drugs, where there's this this, um, idea that you can give a woman a pill or a drug in the drink, and then she'll want to cooperate and have sex, there's this idea that a woman who does not feel somehow satisfied with her sexual life, can just take a pill and boom, experience satisfaction. And so back then it was determined that this is just simply not possible because there's too many factors. So let's go ahead and see how modern medicine has tackled this problem. And so they also suggested that uh, blood tests for thyroid test, estradiol, follicle stimulating hormone, prolactin, testosterone. Now that any of these tests are relevant, but we have darn near exsanguinated this lady. Those of you who don't understand these big words, exsanguinated means we've taken a substantial amount of blood from this lady, and if she was healthy before we got to her, she might not be healthy now. And they even asked us to click a link on workup for more detail. This is, this is what they're sending doctors. So you ladies, when you go see your doctor, he's going to beat around the bush about sexual matters and you don't really know what he's talking about. And finally, you'll realize he's trying to figure out if you're happy with your orgasms. 
And then once you commit to an answer and say, like, eh, you know, they're okay, oh, you know, I'm not going to complain, they'll say, oh, we have intervention. And then it's going to approach you with all of these uh, tests, several hundred dollars worth of tests, as a matter of fact. So he does all these tests. Nothing uh, tells us, the doctor, how to evaluate any of these tests. Let's say they're all normal. Does that mean that there's nothing wrong with the lady? Well, of course not. So what are we going to do for this lady? Doctors are told they should give cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the psychotherapeutic intervention. Sensate focus therapy. You know, she should focus on her clitoris, perhaps, and maybe something will happen. And adjunctive approach to sex education, so give her sex education, train her in communication skills, who she's going to communicate with, I don't know. And, of course, Kegel exercises, which, my personal opinion, I've never seen them work for anything. Direct masturbation, so now the doctor's going to instruct the patient on how to masturbate. And uh, there's an Eros clitoral therapy device. Hmm. Sounds pretty suspect to me. Not exactly scientific. Couples or family therapy and individual or couples sex therapy. I just have to say here that when I was a medical resident family practice program back in 1989, um, there actually was a, a couples therapy sex whatever rotation. And so I took the rotation because, of course, no one else wanted to take it and it was there and so they had to fill the slot and there it was. And... Uh, it was really, um, yeah, I didn't see where it was that beneficial to the unfortunate couple who signed up for it. So what do they say? As a rule, pharmacological interventions for secondary anorgasma should consider the underlying medical etiology. What does that mean? The English is, if you're going to give the lady drugs, you should take a look at a medical illness she may already have that can cause the condition. So in other words, Maybe she's taking an antidepressant and it's inducing this condition. In which case, reduce the antidepressant dose or switch to a different medication like bupropion or Buspar. And now the other cause might be substance abuse. Identify and treat the underlying abuse. Now we know that substance abuse programs are pretty much ineffective. So this is just uh, run the bill up. And in postmenopausal women with decreased sexual desire, consider testosterone plus estrogen for this condition. Now, at present, they say no medication has been. This is an old uh, thing. This is like hmm, 2013. Yeah. So they said there was no drug approved, but we now have a drug approved. But this is what they they are suggesting. And so, of course, if we're going to diagnose this condition, the only way to diagnose this condition is the lady said she has it. She says so. So there really is no objective evidence or measure of this condition. The lady just says, you know what, just not interested anymore. <laughs> so uh, here we have extremely unscientific uh, diagnosis. So that's how the doctor is going to diagnose it. It's going to do a lot of tests, take a lot of blood from this unfortunate lady, run up an incredible bill, and at the end of the day, exclusively on her say-so, he's going to prescribe flibanserin, also known as Adyl, A-D-D-Y-L, I'm sorry, A-D-D-Y-I, Adie, and this is the drug. And here's the big rollout, August 18, 2015. You heard it here. Maybe not first, maybe second. So after a long and controversial process, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved the first ever drug aimed at boosting female libido. I said, my God, they finally did it. They finally did it. Man, they've been working on this since 1983 at least, and finally, finally, they got it. So, of course, you can imagine how excited I was that one of the many medical questions posed in medical school 
and finally addressed. Uh, I tell you, there are not very many of them that were ever resolved, and it's been a while since 1983. And so, today's approval provides women who are distressed by their low sexual desire with an approved treatment option. And this is uh, Janet Woodcock speaking, and she's a doctor and director of the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Now, this is interesting. The women have to be distressed by their low sexual desire. So if they have low sexual desire, but they're not distressed by it, then this wouldn't be the drug for them, apparently. And so this is called Pink Viagra, and it'll be marketed by a pharmaceutical company, it's approved to treat pre-menopausal women. So big word, pre. So if you're postmenopausal, in other words, you're not having um, periods anymore, and you're not having orgasms, things are whole home, uh, this drug has not been proven to be effective for you. And uh, they now have another word for it, hypoactive sexual desire, HSDD. And this diagnosis appeared in the Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition. And they rolled it up, though, into a new thing called Female Sexual Interest Slash Arousal Disorder in the latest edition. And up to 1 in 10 women have this disorder. I guess if you interrogate a woman long enough and hard enough, she will confess to something, just about anything. So one in ten women have this disorder. Okay, I'd like to know: is it deadly? Is it disfiguring? You know, does it shorten your life expectancy? What are the consequences of this disorder? So they're saying that it's a it's a once daily hundred milligram tablet taken at bedtime, and alcohol use will be contraindicated due to the common side effect, including fainting or passing out. So the label will include a box of warning. So you're going to approve a drug and out the gate, it's going to have a box of warning. This is unprecedented. I mean, if you have a drug that treats a life-threatening condition, then of course you're going to release it with a box of warning because although it may be dangerous and deadly, the disease it treats is even more so. But here we have a drug for a benign, call it harmless condition, being released with a boxed warning. The boxed warning indicates that um, it's dangerous. So because of, of a potentially serious interaction with alcohol, treatment with this drug will only be available to certified healthcare professionals and certified pharmacies, Dr. Woodduck said. Now this is a common marketing device um, until they get the production up to what they perceive to be meeting demand, they'll say, well, we can only allow certain pharmacies and certain specially trained doctors to um, administer or prescribe this drug. And so it gives that uh, exclusivity the perception of limited supply. And so any licensed doctor or prescriber, I guess non-doctors as well, will be able to prescribe this drug as long as you're certified in the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy program. So in other words, there are risks. The doctor needs to evaluate them and needs to mitigate them. This means they cannot be eliminated. They can only be reduced. So even though the doctor is trained, even though he's specially certified, even though he does everything they're taught in this program, the black box warnings can still materialize. So they have to counsel patients using a patient-provider agreement. That means the patient has a sign saying, all right, if I get severe low blood pressure and I pass out, then I've been warned. All right. So we see already these ladies are going to pay a pretty high price, and I don't mean money, uh, for this drug to increase their sexual desire. And, of course, the pharmacists have to complete the program, too. Now, this reminds me <laughs> of the uh, certification process when um, Depo-Provera first came out, and we had the long, silastic plastic tubes that we inserted under the woman's skin. 
And so I got certified in that, not wanting to miss out on the incredible avalanche of ladies who would want this, only to put it in about five women over a period of 10 years. So, um, so the pharmacist had to complete this program too. It includes reading the training program and full prescribing information, answering assessment questions online, and completing the attestations. That means saying that you did it and completing a form to enroll in the program. So the doctor literally can just sign, 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 click, 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 and never read anything. All he has to do is say that he read it. Now, clinical education is the focus. That means you've got to let this lady know that she has it. You have to let her know that she's miserable. And you've got to let her know that there's treatment and she doesn't have to put up with this so-so orgasm. So, what are they saying? Uh, HSDD is a very real problem for women. And of course, this is the Director of Female Sexual Medical Program at Stanford University School of Medicine speaking. So this is definitely a conflict of interest and very self-serving. And uh, this doctor says that the condition is caused by an imbalance in neurotransmitters. There's absolutely a need for a drug that's been shown to be safe and effective. And the data shows the true response responders, true responders, have six to eight additional sexual events per month. And she said that she hoped the approval would lead to more clinicians getting educated about this. And so uh, Chief Executive Officer agreed, saying the company's post-approval focus would be on education. We know there's a lot of demand and a lot of interest in this product. And the company's aim is to have a conversation about facts and scientific evidence and expectation setting. So the set expectations. And, um, and this is interesting that we're, gonna, we're expecting six to eight additional sexual events per month. Now I know what's the quality of those sexual events. Maybe we'll find out. And the road to approval has been a long process. You're going to start selling this drug on October 17th, so it's not for sale yet. It's coming. Well, they don't have a, a, a hard and fast price, but the drug would likely be available under insurance plans for a $70 per month copay. Same monthly cost as for erectile dysfunction drugs. All right, so we got uh, gender equality going on here. Now, initially, the company will use 200 sales representatives to detail clinicians already familiar with diagnosing HSDD, primarily obstetricians and gynecologists. Some physicians and primary care doctors will also be included, she said. Again, this is the exclusivity marketing tactic. And doctors thought, oh, oh, wow, I hope the director comes to talk to me. And so other people were not so happy with the approval. Uh-oh, what could that be? Hmm. So hundreds of advocates and scientists have written the FDA in recent weeks alleging that the pharmaceutical company mounted a public relations campaign that glossed over safety and effectiveness concerns in an effort to win approval. So in other words, there are questions about the safety and effectiveness data. So let's see what they are. Letter writers also object to even the score, a campaign that began in June 2014 and receive some of its funding from this pharmaceutical company. So I guess what they're saying is we want to even the scores. Like, hey, you guys got Viagra. Well, no, we've got Adi. Okay, so it's kind of a little competition here. Again, this is a totally kind of uh, emotional type one-upsmanship that doesn't even address is the drug safe or is it effective or is it desirable at all. And so ladies are now going to perceive this as a status symbol that they have, that they're going to pop this pill so they can have equality with men, whatever that might mean. And so several members of Congress did urge the FDA to approve Finland's flibanserin. Flibanserin. First in 2014, led by Representative Debbie Wasserman, Nita Lowry, Louise Slaughter, and then Jackie Spieler. 
And this is important to note that this drug originally was developed as an antidepressant. Yes, antidepressant. If it was so effective, how come it wasn't marketed as an uh, antidepressant? <laughs> and so uh, they sought approval for the drug initially in that category, but the FDA's Committee for Reproductive Health Drugs voted 10 to 1 against approval in 2010. So this drug was denied for approval in a vote 10 against uh, and 1-4. Then, then the rights were sold from one drug company to another. But the FDA rejected approval again. This is the second rejection. And the second drug company appealed. The agency eventually agreed to a new advisory panel meeting. Hmm. Now, I was on the Medical School Admissions Committee. And, of course, what we would do is we would vote on each applicant. So one applicant came before the committee that was clearly, uh, in my mind, totally inappropriate for that practice of medicine. This person wanted to be an OBGYN, and he believed that it was the doctor who created the pregnancy, the doctor who was responsible for the whole thing, and the doctor who uh, controlled the outcome of the baby. And it was a doctor who allowed the the couple to have this child and raise it. So this was a privilege granted by the doctor. And he was excited to go to medical school so he could be in this powerful position. So, of course, I voted against his admission. Well, after that, a stern lecture was given that this applicant should be reconsidered because his father has done helpful things for everyone in this committee way to show our gratitude of making sure his son gets into medical school. And of course we had a revote, a second vote, and uh he was admitted. And so this I think is similar type of pressure applied with this particular drug. So denied twice. Okay. And then there has a joint meeting of the Bone Reproductive and Neurologic Drug Advisory Committees and the Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee. So we have all these committees meeting and they approved it in June of 2015. And the pivotal trial, this is a pivotal trial, women who had 0.5 to one event per month, additional satisfying sexual event over baseline. The aims, a lady says, you know, these orgasms are just pretty blah. I just don't know if I want to keep doing this anymore. I only have one satisfying event per month. Even though I might have 20 events per month, let's say. And so, what they found was that these women only had one additional event per month that was satisfying. So I may have had more events, like had sex eight times a month, but only had satisfaction a few times. You know, for some reason, this show is ending at the half-hour mark. I think I might have to call in or something like that. So we have a drug that delivers a benefit that is of limited uh, benefit, marginal benefit. So... You know, actually, I think if I just keep talking, it continues. So, the FDA decided that this was statistically significant. And so, also, on a scale of 1.2 to 6, it will improve their rating of satisfaction by 0.4. on a scale of 1.2 to 6. And a improvement in the female sexual distress scale compared with placebo. So again, 0.3 to 0.4. This is, if you ask me, this is pretty minor. So they felt though that these are statistically significant improvements. And there's also a very large placebo effect. 51% of patients taking flubanserin said the desire had improved. 51%. 
But 38% of placebo patients include, indicated the same thing. So we just do a little math here. We take 51, we subtract 38, and we have more or less 13% of women taking this drug benefited. And so the label will note that if a woman is not responding after eight weeks of daily dosing, the therapy should be discontinued. And so what we're getting here then is we're getting... 87% of people who have no chance of benefiting from this are going to be taking this drug to no benefit. So this is a problem. Now, would you buy a car that had a 13% start rate, that when you turned it on to go, it would turn on about uh, 13% of the time, would not turn on 87% of the time? Would you uh, go to a grocery store that when you got all your groceries together and you checked out and you paid for your groceries, you only had a 13% chance of walking out of the store with the groceries you just paid for? So this is a problem, and this is what some people might call actually fraud. <laughs> uh, in other words, the, the drug, by their own research, is not very effective at all. It's the effective rate is absolutely um, minuscule. And it's like a mention to people the um, call-in number for Blog Talks Radio. If you want that, it's uh, 914-338-695. So those of you who've lost sound, you can dial in and then you can hear the sound. Okay, so we've established that there's no scientific way for determining if the lady is having uh, lack of satisfying orgasms, number one. Number two, if indeed she does confess to such a disorder, should she take this drug for eight weeks, her chances of benefit are 13%. Shocking. Absolutely, absolutely shocking. So I want to know, how does this work? Does a guy uh, come in and say, hey, my wife is on the blitz here, you know, she's, her orgasms just aren't that great. I think she's really faking it. Uh, do you have a pill for her? I don't know. As many of you know, um, I write comic strips. And so the comic strip is, just two guys are talking. One guy says, you know, I don't think my wife is really that satisfied. I think I think she's faking all these orgasms. Second guy says, Oh, don't worry. Get some full band in, and then she can fake even more orgasms. So, in other words, this is not uh this, this is a drug whose effectiveness, if you want to call it that, is is minimal. So thirteen percent of women are going to experience a benefit that many people find to be irrelevant. So if the lady is having 10 events a month, basically not really satisfied with these events, if she takes this drug, she's going to have an additional 0.4 per month satisfying events. Hardly worth the trouble. Hardly worth the trouble. All right. So, that's the approval. Uh, so, let's talk about the hazards. What is it they're, they're telling doctors? Okay. What they're telling doctors is that this uh, bothersome low libido, known as hypoactive sexual desire disorder, that's the HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, 
Um, it's saying it's difficult to treat. It's frustrating condition for women, for their partners and clinicians. And uh, testosterone has had some usefulness in postmenopausal women, but only at ultra high doses. And a long-term safety profile is is not very good. Um, so what are they saying? They're saying you take a hundred milligram tablet daily, and it's not effective in all women with premenopausal HSDD. So we know actually it's really only effective in thirteen percent of women, and. So what they're saying is 25% of women in the clinical trials experience an increase in increase of four or more satisfying sexual events with this drug compared with the 15% of those assigned to placebo. So again, if you take the difference between 25% and 15%, the real benefit here is 10%, even less than the prior study. This is this is really pretty dismal. And unlike the rapid effect of medications for male erectile dysfunction, the benefits of this drug, sildenafil, in reducing hypoactive sexual desire, are observed only after a month of daily treatment, with results peaking at eight weeks. That means at eight weeks it peaks, means it drops off after that. And it's not known to affect sexual arousal or orgasmic function. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This lady is saying that she wants more orgasms, she wants better orgasms, and now they're saying this drug does not affect sexual arousal or orgasmic function. So this lady's not going to be more aroused and not going to have better orgasmic function. So we have to scratch our head on this one. But side effects, drowsiness, low blood pressure, fainting, uh, these side effects are real, and this is why it's taken at bedtime. Also, liver disease, and use of alcohol causes an increase in these side effects. So if you drink some alcohol, you're more likely to pass out. So get this picture. This lady is having problems with her sexual desire. This guy in front of her, she'd like to have sex with him, but quite frankly, (laughs) she's just not really feeling it. A lot of women would actually take a drink of alcohol to see if they couldn't just kind of relax a bit and maybe warm up to the idea. And then they're telling this lady, you can't take this drug with alcohol. So definitely makes things a little more difficult. So you can't take it take it with uh, antifungal, antibiotics, or antiviral, antiretroviral, that means AIDS drugs. And so only prescribers certified through an online process can prescribe this drug. And so what we have then is a drug that's avowedly ineffective. Um, one study says 13% benefit. This, this study they're quoting says 10% benefit. In other words, the benefit is the woman who would not improve had the drug not been administered. So a placebo gives you a 15% improvement. The drug gives you a 25% improvement. True benefit has to be the difference between the two, which is 10%. So we have a drug that's 90% ineffective, ineffective. And uh, this is what the FDA has approved after three tries. And so um, what this tells us then is the approval process at the FDA is definitely a, a democratic political process, not a scientific one. So let's see go to our, let me go take a peek over here at our question board, just so I can see. And then, uh, so what do you do? What are some natural natural ways of handling this? I think that's the positive way to go. So you guys know I've been at this for a while, all this natural healing stuff, and a few ladies have walked in and said, you know, Dr. Daniel, I got the world's best husband. He goes to work every day. He earns lots of money. He pays his bills. He's really nice to me, but I'm just not interested in having sex with him, and I feel so, so guilty about this. I have heard this complaint, yes. And so what do these ladies do that works very, very well? Well, one thing, actually two things, is to take milk thistle. Yes, milk thistle. 
it turns out that what really blocks a lady's libido is that the liver is supposed to go into play and produce an incredible surge in neurotransmitters. It's the ancillary assistive organ here. And so when a lady has a clogged up liver, nothing happens. It doesn't happen. And so muscles will unclog the liver. Then what do you do? Lady drinks red raspberry tea, red raspberry leaf. Leaf is the active part. And um, some ladies prefer capsules. So they'll take maybe three capsules twice a day. And between the red raspberry tea and the milk thistle, boom, great uh, sexual desire and happy, uh, happy marriage. What else uh, can help? By accident, I stumbled upon another uh, natural substance that is extremely helpful, and this is St. John's wort. And so I had a uh, patient who was experiencing problems with just arthritis and little this and that, whatever. So I gave this person uh, a multiple vitamin that happened to have a pretty high dose of St. John's wort in it. And it didn't take long. It took about six weeks. And this lady's sexual desire was just off the charts. She came in complaining to me that her husband just, just couldn't keep up. He just wasn't, you know, interested. And so I said to her, well, share your vitamins. And she did. She shared her vitamins, and it went great. So those are two natural solutions that, that work. Now, in addition to those, obviously, you have to eat your vegetables, drink your water, have your bowel movements, get all the junk out so your organs can can work properly and so you can be in a very good uh you know very good mood because parasites and chemicals won't be literally nibbling away at you. So that's the natural solution. Okay, let's see what our chat room is saying. All right, chat room. Uh, <laughs> okay, so one person's chat room is convinced that her thyroid is keeping her from having an orgasm. Uh, the medical answer to that is, of course, take your thyroid medicine. Okay. All right, so we got all kinds of questions here, but none of them are relating to the topic. So. Those of you calling in, you can, I think, click one, and I'll answer your question. Okay, so, uh, Dr. Daniels, what is your opinion of homeopathy? Is it real? Does it work? Is there any medical value to a substance which has been diluted until it has no, until it's no longer present? Okay, so as many of you know, I'm not a theoretical person. I'm a very practical person. The practical question is, have I ever recommended or used a homeopathic preparation that worked? Yes. Have I ever recommended or used a homeopathic preparation that did not work? Absolutely. So, where does homeopathy fit in the whole thing? What I have found from observing uh, my patients and how they do is that relying on homeopathy as your primary mode of healing does not work. It doesn't work. The reason is the fundamental basis of homeopathy is electrical. And so it does not result in the removal of the parasites or the toxins that are causing the negative electricity or the electricity that's causing the disease. So then if you rely totally on homeopathic methods, then you're basically committing yourself to using the same homeopathy over and over and over again. And what many people do is they continue to use homeopathy and the underlying cause, parasites or toxins, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and worse and worse and worse. So for that reason, I don't rely on homeopathy. I only use one or two uh, homeopathic uh, remedies. One is the, the rescue remedy. I have found that one is very, very good. And you can get rescue remedy online, Amazon. And it's a 
pretty expensive, around $17. But one bottle of Rescue Remedy can easily last you 10 years. So definitely worthwhile. Um, the other remedy that I like is Newton's Homeopathic Detox Formula. It gets the kidneys and the liver working, de-accelerates detox. And so um, people who hit a block in their healing can use that, and that helps them kind of get over the hump. So that's my opinion of homeopathy. Um, the other homeopathic preparations, again, have not found them uh, beneficial. Homeopathy. Okay. All right. Yes. I am saving the show on my end and putting it up on my site because there seems to be a transmission difficulty. <laughs> What is the minimum daily requirement for potato chips? The answer would be zero. Okay. Do you have any Okay. In your book, Do You Have the Guts to Beautiful? You mentioned not using soap to wash the face. Yes, because it will dry your face and give you wrinkles and accelerate your aging. What do you suggest we use then? I suggest you use a gentle rice bran scrub. Take rice bran and water to it, scrub your face, rinse it off, and then apply oil. And that is uh, a cleanser and a moisturizer. <laughs> okay, what does Dr. Dennis think of cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr? Okay, Dr. Dennis thinks that cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr are... Um, Economic manipulations to get people to submit to some pretty dangerous stuff. In other words, cytomegalovirus is harmless to people who have an intact immune system, as is Epstein-Barr virus. So the cure for cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr virus would be to boost the um, immune system. So this person says, I have reactive Epstein-Barr, which supposedly is what gives me chronic and constant fatigue. Probably not. Probably what's really going on here is you have a dietary issue, you have a cleansing issue, or you have a parasite issue, and you should address those. Um, you can go to vitalitycapsule.com, click on Discovery Session, and then uh, you know we can talk about that and discover kind of what's really at the bottom of this and give you some direction there. Is there any benefit to food combining, or is that another suggestion like don't drink water with meals? There is something to food combining, but there are no absolutes. It depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to gain weight, for Christ's sake, definitely combine your carbs and your meats. <laughs> Put on that weight. Uh, if you're trying to lose weight, then don't combine carbs with your meats. In fact, skip the meats totally. Um, you know, just eat vegetables. So... What you combine and don't combine depends on what your state of health is at the moment and what you want to achieve. All right. Can a thyroid be healed or is it necessary to use a replacement like pig thyroid? Are there other things to do to make the thyroid happy? The thyroid uh, is an organ that uh, takes thyroglobulin and adds iodine to it and Depending on how many iodines are on it, it's more more active or less active. Um, the actual protein building blocks are made by the liver. So start with the liver. And fix that up, buff it up, get it in shape, and that will help the thyroid quite a bit. And also adopting a diet that unplugs the liver. So in many cases it means uh, you know, a diet very high in vegetables, definitely an organic diet. I've had people in my practice who uh, enter the practice on a pretty low dose of thyroid hormone, like uh, 0.05 of Synthroid, and are able to stop taking it Synthroid as opposed to getting worse. And so everybody is different, but um, I am surprised at how many people can, one, stop taking their thyroid, or two, if the person's not tolerant of thyroid supplementation, how many are actually able to improve their health without needing thyroid supplementation? Now, it's able to resolve their symptoms by fixing their liver, fixing their adrenal glands, and they do uh, very, very well. Okay. Oh, we have lots of questions. Let's see. Um, okay. 
Okay. Thanks for your mentioned that most emergency surgeries are not necessary. But if you experience acute pain on the right side, would that indicate emergency hospital visit like appendicitis? Well, you know, the regular doctors have done research showing that surgery is not necessary for most appendicitis. Now, this is a new finding, only about one or two years old, but that's very interesting. So 75% of time, um, surgery is not necessary for appendicitis. And so think of all those unnecessary appendectomies. Yes. Uh, okay. So, um, acute pain on the right side is not an indication for emergency hospital visit. It could be your liver, it could be your gallbladder, it could be your appendix, but all those things, I would say, if you're experiencing uh, severe pain of that type, a glass of water and a shot of castor oil, that would be the safest uh, thing to do. Uh, and again, I'm guessing that you're not very sophisticated, this is not something that you're you know, like really keen on. So just take a guzzle of castor oil, a quarter cup per 150 pounds, more or less. Okay. What does SSKI stand for? It stands for supersaturated potassium iodide solution. (laughs) Okay. Turpentine is suggested to get rid of parasites and such that cause sugar cravings. But it's mentioned to clean up the diet first. Any tips on how to fix the diet when the parasite cravings are stronger than we are? The thing to do is to fix the diet as best you can. Most people are able to do something. And so you need to make some type of progress in the direction of improving your diet. If you Start turpentine exactly where you are right now, and you know, let's say you're having health issues, then it's very likely you'll get a severe cleansing reaction. You'll feel lousy. You'll be like, oh, Dr. Daniel, I never should have done that. <laughs> so don't do that. Uh, make some changes. At least in, in, increase your water, increase your bowel movements. Uh, make it easy on yourself. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's see what other questions we have here. What causes you to lose your sense of smell? Um, the sense of smell is two things that control a sense of smell. One is your taste buds, and second thing is the um, the nerves that extrude from the brain in the roof of your nose. And these uh, detect a smell. Now, if you don't have a sense of smell, a lot of times what happens is you have inhaled something that was caustic and that actually damaged those nerves. And so that can cause a loss of of a sense of smell. Usually, the sense of smell can be uh, revived by uh, detoxing. Okay, great. I think that's it for all those questions. Oh my gosh, next week, next week, what is next week's topic? (laughs) It is not uh, the topic. The title is You Told the First Lie. So it is not possible to cheat an honest man. This is what my father told me as a little girl. In order to be swindled, you must first lie to yourself. And so next week I'm going to talk about what is the first lie people tell themselves that make it possible for the medical industrial complex to swindle millions of people. Of course, tune in and think happens. That's next week's topic. I just want to make sure I got that out there for you so that uh, we didn't um, get cut off. Also, I have to uh, do station identification. And let's see what station identification might be today. 
Okay, you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on Rainbow Soul Channel at BlakeRadio.com. As always, please visit at VitalityCapsules.com and get your free report. We've got a few of them. Uh, most popular one tonight, sounds like, is uh, the Candida Report, which teaches you how to use turpentine uh, for your everyday healing. And you can get that at VitalityCapsules.com forward slash Candida. And of course, you can call in at 914-338-0695. All right, station notification, we did that. All right. What do I have? Okay, that's it. So then, the problem here with this drug, well, first of all, is it doesn't work. So fewer than 10%, somewhere around 10 to 12% of women who take this drug are going to experience increased satisfaction over a period of two months, of eight weeks, and that would be their peak results. Peak suggests that the results decline from there out. So first thing might be that, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's not that effective. 90% failure rate, that's a bit high. But the next thing that's really distressing about this is by making... Um, female orgasmic disorder and medical diagnosis, you then say, wait a minute, the medical industrial complex has the um, authority to determine what kind of orgasm is okay, what kind of orgasm is not okay, and is it okay for this lady to be satisfied with her non-orgasmic life? You know, many people who are, who are married and very happy with their lives and their lives might not meet the standard of care, might not meet the, the orgasm standard set by the orgasm board or the obstetricians and gynecologists. And so when you allow this degree of intrusion, then what you can say is, okay, this is what a woman should feel. If she doesn't feel it, then this is a drug that she needs to take. And then you reach the point where it can be compulsory. And this is the problem that I see. Basically, whether a woman has an orgasm or doesn't is really a private matter. And um, whether she is happy with it or not is also a private matter. And so to externalize that evaluation and say, let the doctor decide, let the doctor diagnose, and even further to say to her, if she does feel she wants to take this gamble, 90% failure gamble, then she has to submit to the torture of being penetrated with needles, um, having a pelvic exam, totally irrelevant. Um, we call that rape, which is basically sexual touching under false pretenses. So to say to women then, if you want to use this drug, you have to submit to this torture, rape, assault, and abuse is what I find objectionable. So the issue here with even having a diagnosis called female orgasmic disorder is the authority it gives to the doctor to ask these very personal invasive, unreasonable questions that have nothing to do with the diagnosis because, of course, the diagnosis is subjective. It's like a guy saying, well, I have erectile dysfunction. Okay, we'll take your word for it. Here's a script. For a woman, it should be the same thing. Well, take your word for it. Here's a prescription. And, by the way, in many countries, these medications don't require a prescription. Or, once the prescription is written, it can be refilled indefinitely for years and years and years. And so we have to ask what's really going on here. And what's really going on here is a massive invasion of privacy, a massive uh, torture and violation, call it rape, campaign. And is this really the way we as citizens want um our personal affairs to be handled? I would say no. In this case, of course, the decision is very easy because the drug is only effective in 10% who take it. The effect of the drug is minimal. 
the side effects of drugs are dramatic. I think passing out is a pretty big side effect. And so this is the one that's easy to turn down. So female Viagra, too good to pass up? I don't think so. I would say think again, and this is definitely one to uh, to pass up. And again, uh, beware the medical advance. And so I'll see you again next week. And next week we're going to talk about you told the first lie. It's impossible to cheat an honest man. And so we're going to talk about what it is that makes it possible for so many Americans to be swindled by the medical industrial complex. As always, think happen.